I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome. Hello. To the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we kick it off with the Week in Review. What movies and TV shows we've been watching since the last episode. Move on to the main event, which is a main topic of discussion or a main review. And then finish up with Film Faves, our respective list of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. In this episode, after corrections and a brief week in review, our main event will be a review of Marvel's Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. And then Film Faves will be slightly different. We will be counting down favorite martial arts movies, but we're going to have a guest on to talk about martial arts movies a little bit, and then I will talk about my favorite martial arts movies. It's a great pairing this time in this episode. Hopefully, it's a good one for you. But first, we made mistakes. We're not above mistakes. Every once in a while, we do make them. And especially in our bonus episode, our fall movie preview, I don't know if you caught that, but you should check it out if you haven't listened to it already we made a couple mistakes first of all actually this was not in the fall movie preview this was in the favorite comedies episode with free guy i believe i talked about my man godfrey and carol lombard was the female lead in my man godfrey but in the fall movie preview we did make a mistake one of many one I can remember for sure is that we were talking about the Eternals as one of the movies we're looking forward to most in the fall season. And Shanna, you had asked if Chloe Zhao was the first woman to direct a Marvel film. Solo. And and I had said, well, let's see, Anna Bonin had co-directed for Captain Marvel, and then my mind went blank and said, yeah, I think I think maybe so. We've got something obvious that just happened in the past couple months. And that was that Kate Shortland had Black Widow finally release. Mm. And she is actually the first woman to direct a film on her own. That was gross undersight. I'm very sorry. She did a fantastic job. Yes, uh, she did. First woman in the MCU to direct a film on her own. We apologize for the oversight and the brain fart. It explains the awesome female jokes in the movie and female commentary. Very good. That's all the errors that I can recall. If you caught any, feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. We probably have many that you will catch over time. But now, time for the weekend review. Now, Shanna, you and I haven't really seen anything independently worth talking about, right? Yeah, that's true. I've been checking out a couple different shows, and some shows I'm not going back to, and some shows I am sticking with. Mm -hmm. So when I'm done, I'll discuss them. Mm -hmm. And myself, I'm still chipping away at 90s live-action Disney movies. I'm probably going to break that up into a two-parter because there are so many movies that Disney, Walt Disney Pictures released in the 90s 
So I'm chipping away at that. Nothing really to report there yet. And and then I did some prep for this episode in terms of martial arts movies. So, but we we finished Arrowverse season four, right? Mm-hmm. So we took a brief break before diving into the next 85 episodes, which is season five. And we watched two miniseries that we discovered, documentary miniseries. <laughs> the first... Yeah. Was the history of comedy. This was very funny because I was looking for something to watch with our son. And I was like, oh, the history of comedy will make us feel better. We were having a rough day. And I started the episode and I heard the CNN sound clip Mm -hmm. that, you know, shows that it's a CNN show. And I was like, oh, looks like we can't watch this. Can't watch this without dad. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good it's a good one, though, to a lot of the episodes to watch with a a teenager and stuff. This is a series, a 14 episode miniseries that utilizes archival footage punctuated by contemporary interviews with comedy legends and scholars talking about the history of not only what makes us laugh, but how comedy has affected the social and political landscape throughout history. You will see such people make appearances as Elaine Boozler, Patton Oswalt, Conan O'Brien, Larry Charles, Rob Reiner, Judd Apatow, Keegan-Michael Key, Sarah Silverman, Larry David, Ali Wan, Craig Ferguson, Kenya Barris. Their list just goes on. There's so many uh, great talking heads on this. And each episode looks at comedy from a different aspect, right? Be it one episode being about sitcoms or maybe being about sketch comedy or maybe being about language in comedy or maybe being about sex in comedy or, you know, all these different facets Mm. of comedy are explored in these 14 episodes. Shanna, what did you think of the history of comedy? Did you find it at all interesting engaging and and, uh educational what what struck you about it it was fantastic they had a really great pattern per episode and system going that was very educational to me i guess i know nothing about comedy until i watched this so there was all new information and so i was very engaged and most of it made me laugh. So that was a plus, you know. If you need a break from life, this is definitely a show to check out. I was fascinated with how they spoke about SNL. And in particular, when 9-11 happened and they, were, they spoke about the sensitivity of when do you open things up again? When do you encourage people to laugh and be joyous again? for just a brief moment and the way that first episode after 9-11 happened was so beautiful and moving so comedy isn't just this thing that we get to have a good time with there's a lot that there's a lot more to it that meets the eye we're seeing how caring comedians are and how respectful comedians are but also how comedians see the world. They're going to see through the bullshit and they're going to say something about it. So there was this really lovely spectrum that was happening and that was being depicted. 
that last point especially was something that they that I felt was really underscored about how comedians, especially stand-up comedians, are the ones who are observing the world and all the different aspects of it and and articulating or or speaking to it in ways that you might not be able to. Uh, things that may not be okay in the world or just minor domestic day-to-day stuff, mm-hmm. right? So a huge spectrum of things. That definitely was striking. I learned a lot. I mean, like, there's certain people I didn't know about, and I know, like, a fair amount, having especially grown up in the 80s and 90s when there was a huge boom of stand-up comedians and, and people coming up and then getting their sitcom and all that sort of stuff, most of which failed. Mm-hmm. But there were certain people... That was very interesting to learn about. Yeah, yeah. But there's certain people I, I hadn't heard about or I didn't realize were so significant, like Elaine Boozler in the episode that talks about women in comedy. I didn't yeah. realize that Elaine Boozler was so significant. I was vaguely familiar with her. The, I didn't know that Red Fox was the first stand-up comedian to record an album, a full like comedy album. Mm-hmm. You know, these kinds of things, there's all kinds of stuff, that little nuggets that come about. Why is Richard Pryor so significant? Why was George Carlin significant when he came along in the evolution of comedy? You know, these people who were definite what's the word is benchmarks or milestones throughout the history of comedy and what they did and how they pushed things forward and how comedy is always pushing the envelope and certain key people are the ones really breaking through the, the, the next wall. Right. Uh, I thought it was absolutely fascinating, often hilarious, sometimes touching and always engaging and intelligent. So, I think we both highly recommend The History of Comedy, 14-episode miniseries. I think they're like, what, 45 minutes an episode or something? Yeah, and they're really dense. You know, if you know nothing about comedy, this is the perfect thing to watch. Uh, We realized after we watched episode one or two that we didn't want to watch that particular episode with our son (laughs) because it was all about sex jokes and it, it takes it through the spectrum which was very interesting. Yeah, the first episode was about like dirty comedy vol- and and like, like the blue, language. Blue jokes. Yeah. And so you learn a lot about terminology as well. Mhm. Absolutely. So uh, that is available on HBO Max. Next thing we saw also on HBO Max, I didn't even know existed but apparently came out in 2019. Another miniseries, this was a six-episode miniseries called The Movies, also created by CNN. This is a miniseries that looks at the history of movies and their impact on culture. But what they do is just about every episode, it takes it by a decade. Mm -hmm. Okay, Except the first episode looks at the entire Golden Age era and the Silent Era. And then the last episode looks at the entire era of the of the turn of the century since the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the 2000s and the 2010s, and you will see people talking very much like the history of comedy. You will hear from people like Paul Thomas Anderson, Brad Bird, 
Ben Mankowitz, uh, Edgar Wright, Alec Baldwin, Larry Charles again, Cameron Crowe, Bill Hader, Holly Hunter, Tom Hanks again, John Landis, and yeah, I feel like Tom Hanks is a CNN (laughs) show favorite. I feel like Tom Hanks just came and stayed with them for a month and mm. just knocked it all out. <laughs> You'll also see some critics. That was really exciting for me. Uh, Kenneth Turin of the LA Times, uh, Amy Nicholson shows up, as well as a handful of other critics, uh, well-established critics, uh, you'll see too. So, Shanna, what was your experience like with the movies? Was it as enlightening for you as the comedies? I found that it wasn't, and that was rather sad, but also really interesting. It means that you have done a fabulous job when you took us through the decades of the past. You know, we were moving backwards and we were learning all these different things. That basically anything that was being said in this show is what you have shared with me already. Mm. So I really enjoyed how everything was weaved together. It became a game for me because there were so many snippets from different movies, sometimes too many. And I was trying to guess what they were from before it showed Mm. the credit line of what they were showing. I really enjoyed that element of the show. And, you know, hearing from different people is always fun, mm. like who who you've mentioned already. And hearing what inspired them to make movies, what they loved about the movies is always a fun little fanfare, right? Mm. Because you get to hear from people that you that you're a fan of what they're a fan of. So it's always fun. Exactly. To that point, it's so fascinating to see Paul Thomas Anderson, the director of Boogie Nights and There Will Be Blood, talking with enthusiasm about like action blockbusters and stuff, you know, things that you wouldn't necessarily think would appeal to the guy who made the Phantom Thread or something, you know, that's (laughs) that's fun. Yeah, I will say that. Everybody needs their vice, and maybe that's his vice. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Maybe you know, there's nothing, whatever. But it was it was really cool for me to see certain film critics talking on this. It, does this also have Kim Masters? I think appeared in it too, from the KCRW's The Business. Yeah, there there was a spectrum of different people appearing and commentating about the history of film. Yeah, so that was cool, and you know, there's things that are not covered. In a particular time period, some yeah. sometimes like the very surprising what isn't touched on because it might be something that really is Im- important to that decade. But for the most part, this is a very thorough and like there's a lot of ground that's covered in each 84 ep- uh, minute episode. And I feel like, you know, first of all, I'm really like heartened by the fact that for you, this wasn't all that educational for you because, like, you knew most of everything. And that's kind of cool. And, and, and that was the case, obviously, for me as well. But I was still engaged. I was still loving it because seeing these clips and hearing these people talk about these things was just catnip for me, 100%. <laughs> and, however, I do feel like if you're just starting to learn about film if you're not that far into your journey as a cinephile 
or if you're, you know, a casual lover of movies or whatever, I think there's a lot for you to get out of this. And I really think that it'll it'll probably inspire you to dig deeper into some of the films and, and things that are talked about in these in different episodes. So there's, I think there's a lot of value. It could be a great jumping off point for someone who's young enough, maybe, to just won't be starting to learn about film. Yeah, I think it's perfect for all the teenagers that we know in our life that are fond of film. Mm. I would say they need to go and watch this mm -hmm. and decide and cherry pick what, what looks like would be fun for them to watch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it didn't really speak about, well, I guess, you know, it, it hadn't gotten that far, but it didn't speak about Marvel's success and it didn't really speak about foreign film. And I feel like they could have spoken about foreign film, but they didn't. I feel like they need to have another season, really, because I think that their last episode that was catching them up was a little rushed hmm, okay. and didn't exactly have what I was looking for. Like, there's so much more you can talk about. You can talk about F-rated films and you can talk right. about foreign films qualifying for main picture Oscar nominations and the impact that that has on different cultures around the world and you know, talk about how visual effects. I mean, there wasn't really much spoken about that, I felt. That could have been an episode all by itself from anything. Uh, it could be Tron to what we have now with Marvel movies and everything in between. Uh, I think maybe they spoke about it with 2049 Blade Runner, but not too much. It really wasn't a highlight. Well, here's the thing. Like, first of all, they touch on a lot of things. So they touched on some of the stuff you're talking about. But this is a, a very like cursory look at a particular period in each True. episode. True. It's not intended to really dig deep into particular aspects. And the focus is very much American films and, and you know, the American film history, not world film history. So yeah, it doesn't talk about the French new wave or Italian neorealism or anything like that. Uh, but it, it is a great jumping off point for sure. So that's the movies by CNN and both of these miniseries can be found on HBO max and I'll about do it. For the weekend review, and now it's time to move in to the main event, which is our review of Shane Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I gave you ten years to live your life. Now you see me rise. And where did that get you? I trained you so the most dangerous people in the world couldn't kill you. Son, it's time for you to take your place by my side. Not 
you. And that was from the trailer to Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. The IMDB description of Shang-Chi is that he is the master of unarmed weaponry-based kung fu. He's forced to confront his past after being drawn into the Ten Rings organization. This film is directed by Destin Daniel Cretton, who had directed Short Term 12, which starred fellow MCU alumni, if you will, Brie Larson. It stars Simu Liu, Aquafina, Tony Leung, Fala Chen, Michelle Yeoh, Sai Chin, uh, Stephanie Su, and so many other Chinese stars. When we review a movie, we like to first Take a look at the good. What worked for us about a movie? Uh, what were its strengths before looking at the bad? What sucked about a movie? What were its flaws or issues that we had? Maybe. Then we weigh whether or not the good outweighs the bad in the film. Give our final thoughts and then move on to spoilers and any other thoughts we had about the film. Shanna. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering what you're going to ask. <laughs> this movie was a big question mark for us. It it was, I think, still positioned to be the second official film in the fourth phase of the MCU, even before the pandemic. I'm trying to remember what the schedule looked like originally, and I believe Black Widow was still supposed to follow just a few months right after Endgame hit. And then a few months later, I think Shang-Chi well, and I think then it Eternals. Was, I thought it was meant to be Eternals first. Oh. And then Shang-Chi was like, Eternals was originally supposed to be a sort of November thing. Yes. And then Shang-Chi was supposed to be a February thing. That's was how it? Okay. I, I, yeah, they, I think they switched it. We could be wrong. I will quickly research it, but I okay. think you're probably right. Oh, that's lovely to hear. <laughs> that's very nice. And when in doubt, default to the wife is right, <laughs> right? Okay, so from what I can tell, mostly they're still filming when the pandemic hit. And because filming got halted, the schedule got Halt, uh, delayed and I don't have anything that says what the original release date was just that it got pushed to like May of this year and then it got pushed again to like July or something July or August and then it got pushed to right now but it sounds like most of that's because it wasn't finished filming and they're planning not being finished during the course of 2020 in their original plan. So maybe that means that you were right, that Shang-Chi was meant for February mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and Eternals was November. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and if you look at the two different movies, their trailers, you can you kind of get the sense that Eternals is its own thing being inserted into the Marvel universe. It's not something that's going to necessarily tie a lot of things, obviously. Well, that seems to be the case with Shang-Chi also when you look at the trailer and what little we knew. Yeah, but I don't know. With Shang-Chi, I was like, oh, it's this current time. It's not stretching over history of humanity. Right. That, you know, to me, that's like, okay, that's going to easily weave into what we're dealing with right now. So now, instead, Shang-Chi is the second film of Phase 4. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. It would be interesting to see how that affects things in terms of our perception of Phase 4. We've, all, we've even had TV shows... Uh, limited series that came about before this movie that weren't supposed to. But what were your thoughts going into this movie? If you had any, it seemed like it maybe it was a big blank slate. And during the course of the film, what was good for you about the film? What were its strengths? Was anything impressive to you about it? So I know nothing about Shang-Chi. You know, we didn't have any merchandise up to this point. We don't have Shang-Chi represented in any of our card games that we have. And so my exposure was very limited. When I saw the first trailer and I saw Aquafina was in it, I was like, hell yeah. (laughs) Like, of course I want to go and see that. Mm. Uh, It's Marvel. Of course I want to go. When I was watching this film, I was very entertained and happy with the viewing experience. I thought the story was great. I loved the sort of ping pong game of enjoying the family you have, enjoying other people's family in your life, you know, your best friend's family, and and staying close with friendships and enjoying life for what it is even if you have something that even if you have a sort of dark side uh, or guilt that you're carrying with you so there were a lot of little things that were being touched on and nothing was really being spoon-fed to us it's all up for interpretation and where you are in your life experiences Hmm. I thought the performances were great. I thought the casting was great. I loved the characters we were exposed to. And I loved how much fun this was. It was a lot of fun. Mm. And it was very enjoyable. But there were also moments of absolute tension. And I was scared. And I was holding onto my face and trying not to scream. Really? Yeah, because I was really nervous that really bad things were going to happen. But huh. I, I loved it. Was what was your thoughts when you saw the trailer to Shang Chi, and like, did that affect your anticipation at all? And was the movie in any way similar to what you thought it was going to be after seeing the trailer? If I recall correctly, the only trailer I saw was Aquafina riding a bus in a distressed mm. way, like something was happening on that bus. Yes. Um. We are like there's something that hints that Shang Chi is trying to deal with bad guys. Well, you see a fight there. scene in that so, bus. That was interesting, and I was like, "Well, are they a team?" And then, you know, nothing was really revealing. Mm-hmm. Just like, okay, we're gonna have a good time because Aquafina's here and she's telling jokes. And then Simu Liu, I I know I'm butchering this. I'm so sorry. Like. We know that he's going to be the more serious one or the more neutral one. And that's 
you know, in the trailer, I thought, oh, we're just going to exist in the Western world and we're not going to really go anywhere else. And I was wrong when we saw the movie. So I was I was pleasantly surprised. I was stimulated. I was happy with what the movie had to deliver. What about you? Well, this this movie was, as I had explained to you on the way to the film, kind of a blank slate for me. I really didn't know what to expect from it. I had heard that the film's better than what the trailer might lead you to believe. And honestly, the trailer didn't really tell me much. It, it told me that there's this guy who has some sort of powers and he fights people on a bus. And it told me that Aquafina co-starred in it, maybe as a comical sidekick. I didn't even have an understanding of who the villain was in the film or what the central conflict was, anything like that. So for me, this was a big unknown. And you're right. Like, and I've read a lot of Marvel comics, and even I hadn't been exposed to Shang-Chi. When Shang-Chi as a film was first announced, I was like, who's that? You know, I didn't know anything about him. He wasn't someone who came up in the 90s, really, or even in the aughts much when I was reading. So I was all- very excited that there was Asian representation coming, though, because we had had Black Panther by that point. Sure. Yes. And that even led some question marks because, you know, I know that Asian representation has been and Asian culture has been problematic in Hollywood. So what was that going to be like? That was a big question mark for me. And so I was looking forward to it because of the the just lack of knowledge I had, which is something I think I was saying to you, I hadn't felt this necessarily since 2014's Guardians of the Galaxy, right? In terms of like the excitement of not knowing what to expect. And even then with Guardians, I knew just a little bit more because of how the trailer was cut in terms of what to expect than with this movie. So uh, this movie... Yes, if you're not very impressed by the trailer, uh, you will be by the movie. That's for sure. The movie is really interesting. It does all... I I would very much be interested in hearing from someone of Chinese descent who's who's in touch with Chinese culture to hear their thoughts about how it was represented because from what little I understand, it seemed to be very respectful of... Uh, Chinese culture of kung fu of of kung fu films of martial arts films from Hong Kong and China of wuxia uh, and all these other kinds of influences of the past. Uh, you know, Tony Lin, he was in 2002's Hero with Jet Li, right? And you have Michelle Yeoh also eventually makes an appearance in the movie. She was in super cop with jackie chan she was in crouching tiger hidden dragon she was a uh kung fu like a martial arts star in her own respect in in china so um it seems to me that in terms of representation it did pretty well but i'd be interested in other voices who are more in touch with that what they have to say the movie's surprisingly humorous and it has a surprising story to it with the villain 
how the villain relates to the hero and a lot of stuff that we got to talk about in spoilers, really. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the trailer is probably the best trailer because it's not giving you anything. It's just assuming, well, you know, here's a new hero. Come and check it out. And I like that. There's a lot that's surprising in this film. Yes, I agree with that. I will say Sam Liu is fantastic. This guy, as I understand it, he kind of came out of very little in terms of a Hollywood a, a film career. If I understand correctly, the backstory is he started in like one thing and then he like tweeted, hey, Marvel, how about an Asian movie? I'm, no. I'm here for you, whatever. And then they <laughs> called him in for a meeting. Uh, I'm looking his career up. He starred in a series called Kim's Convenience. He starred in episodes of Aquafina's Nora from Queens, Fresh Off the Boat. I'm trying to find what the one thing... That's cool. So they've worked together before. They have, yes. He starred in the brief show uh, Taken, Blood and Water. I can't really find what the one thing was that I'm thinking of. He's done actually way more than... I had any knowledge of, but mostly like single episodes of TV shows and some shorts. And anyway, he is great. He has a, a natural charisma about him. He can balance everything that this film requires him to balance. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed Aquafina. She just barely sidesteps being the typical wise crack and supporting character which i appreciated well and she didn't steal the show either yeah there was a lovely tightrope happening where there was space given for each of them yeah and anything else i have to say about the film has to be said in in spoilers in terms of what worked for me what didn't work for you shanna let's talk about about the bad about Shane chi and the legend of 10 rings what issues did you have flaws that stood out to you that you could speak to generally about the film i feel really white about this i feel like i had no problems that are apparent to me right now maybe there's one in spoilers i can talk about but i wish that i had I spoke about this with you last night. I wish that I had more exposure to Chinese films and Chinese culture. We really only scratched the surface for me when we were making our when we were making our Chinese movie lists when we reviewed Mulan. Mm. And I just feel like I'm very ignorant and don't know enough to be able to spot the flaws. So there could be there probably are flaws in this film, but I'm not able to really speak to them. You're, you're thinking exclusively in terms of Chinese culture and martial arts films uh, history. Well, and the, the Chinese representation, uh-huh. like what is an okay thing to represent in a particular way and what is not okay? Like what feeds into a stereotype? I am not well versed in this, so... I'm amused slightly because you wanted so badly to avoid martial arts movies and seeing martial arts movies and talking about your favorite martial arts movies. And to a small... I'm so giving you the Miss Piggy face right now. To an extent, it sounds like 
a little bit, it would have helped you had you actually taken the time to dive into the martial arts movies in terms of informing your experience here. I know myself and I knew that I did not have enough time to fully immerse myself and be educated. Okay. You so, having fun? You having fun I, with I that? Am. I'm like, so okay, glad so it's on that you. <laughs> it would not have ha- been able to happen yeah. this season right now. So, Maybe if Shang-Chi was being released in December yeah. and I had time to really sit down and do things and be with present with the movie, but no. Yeah, except we would have had like five, uh, 500 other movies to watch but at that point. I do have some broad things I can speak to that have nothing to do with representation for the most part that I did have issues with. I did think that really it, I, I was left by the climax of the movie feeling like this guy kind of became the master of all a little too easily. Like it wasn't necessarily developed very easily or I'm sorry. It wasn't necessarily developed very thoroughly and well, how he becomes so good at his powers, not the ability to fight that's developed very well, but the powers that he gains and how powerful he becomes I felt was kind of skated very quickly. I disagree. Other lines and actions throughout the film were there to establish how he became the way he is. Yeah, it felt a little easy to me. And then there's, it, it is mildly predictable. We can talk about it in spoilers, but there are certain things that happen in the end. I was like, I, I could see happening a mile away. Sure. And then lastly, there are these two supporting characters in the movie that have strong screen presence. And the main character, Shang-Chi, interacts and fights with them a lot. But I didn't feel like those characters were very well developed. And I, I think that everyone would be hard-pressed to name both of them, especially one of them, you might be able to come up with the name of one of them, but not the other. I'm talking about two people who work with the villain of the film. One is an amputee and the other has a mask. And I challenge anyone to come up with the name of the character with the mask. Okay. And give me three characteristics about that person. All right. That's fair. You know, (laughs) And so, yeah, at the felt, I felt like I was supposed to mm, care one way or another more about those two characters than I did. They felt very thin. Mm. So I think that's mostly all I had that were most. Oh, and then. <sighs> Whenever you sigh like that, something big is coming. <laughs> no, it's not big. It's just a. it is a minor thing, but it's a minor irritant. You have. These villains with these weapons, I don't know the name of the weapon, but it is a type of blade that has a hilt to it, and then it goes up, and then it has kind of like a hook-type uh, end to it. Yeah. And it's it's a common Asian weapon I've seen in a lot of movies before. That is uh, an effective enough weapon. Why add energy beams along the blades? It felt like a quote-unquote safe way for Marvel to use those without, like, killing or, like, being too violent. 
And that mildly irritated me a little because it didn't feel necessary at all. Okay. So that's a minor quibble that like even in the third act, I was like, why do they have these energy weapons? They, you know, they're effective fighters. They, oh, it's just feel, it felt really blatantly bloodless. And that annoyed me. So those are all my quibbles with Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Tangerines. What else did you want to say about it before we assess and get into spoilers? I think this is worth watching in the cinema if you can. It was really great seeing it on the big screen. And I felt like I would want to watch it again at home. That seems to be a system as a result of our new world that's happening with me. But... Yeah, it was a great film. I give it an 8 out of 10. So you wouldn't go back to the theater to see it? Oh, I'm looking forward to seeing it again with our son. Oh, okay. It's, okay. Yeah, I, I got the impression for a second there that you, would, if you were to see it again, you would prefer to see it at home. No, no. I'm just, I'm excited to watch it again and again and see if I missed anything mm. at all. I had a little bit more issues with the movie. Not a lot. Not anything greatly significant. I mean, I guess after, I don't know, how many films have there been for Marvel? 22? I guess after 22, over 20 films, they should be hitting it out of the park each time. Yeah, well, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, you know, you never know. You know, uh, missteps can happen. But, yes, I, I think absolutely the good outweighs the bad here there's so much to enjoy there are things that you will be rewarded for if you have watched the whole mcu you will be rewarded for that uh, because certain things will be referenced and you will see other characters pop up that i don't Mm -hmm. want to spoil Mm -hmm. and that adds to the experience that is really great there's a lot about this that is fantastic there's just minor quibbles i had with it that kept it from being one of the best mcu movies one of the best solo mcu movies uh, so uh, i'm going to hedge a little bit and give it a seven out of ten okay that seems fair now that said if you have watched the film already Come join us. We're going to talk about spoilers for Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. If you have not seen the film yet, skip ahead. Take a look at the show notes. Skip ahead to the film phase where we talk about martial arts movies. So you can enjoy that. But here we go. We're going to talk spoilers a little bit about Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings starting now. I would have liked more time with the system. There's a lot of emotional trauma happening there, you know, between losing her mom, losing her respect of her dad and love of her dad from her dad, and then losing her brother, being abandoned by him. There's a lot of stuff going on there, and I just felt like I wanted more time with her. The time that we did get with her just made me want more of her. So that is the only problem I had with the film. I know you're going to be like, oh, but this is a film about Shang-Chi. No, 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 and... no, 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 no. I was going to ask you, do you feel like she's un, uh, underdeveloped? Or did you just her like arc, her so much you wanted to see her more? Her arc is just, they're moving it really fast. And okay. I just felt like we needed five more minutes with her. Five okay. more minutes of screen time just to let things develop at a more sustainable rate uh-huh. if that like makes a steadier sense. pace 
it would have been better if it was developing at a steadier pace rather than it. Okay. And now we're developed. Okay. You know? Okay. That's interesting. It's, it's similar to my criticism of Shane. She's uh, use of his, of powers basically. Yeah, but we spent the whole movie with Shang-Chi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my thing about Shang-Chi's powers is you've got these little lines that are happening throughout the film. Mm -hmm. He's had more than a decade of training and his sister mentions that she was not allowed to train with the men. So she wasn't allowed to train. But she was ignored and she trained herself by observing. So I think these are very observant individuals the sister and the brother. I think that they're very observant and they're able to implement things very well. And I feel like because he had been training very intensively for over a decade um, and was probably observing his father using the rings and then he's being told by his aunt, you need to know who you are and you need to embrace and then you'll have what your mother and, and then you'll have what your mother and father gave you. I feel like it's fine. I feel like it gets a pass because of several line de- deliveries from several different people and situations. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. What else did you have an issue with? Well, okay, so because then we can focus on the positive after <laughs> and the fun. Maybe. Well, uh, I will clarify the predictability part. For me, once it was presented that that. The Zhu Wenwu, played by Tony Alon, the father, he was uh, going to try to take down this wall. This, yeah, it's basically a wall that was built to keep out dark forces. He that he thought that his wife's spirit or his wife was literally trapped inside that wall, and he was going to free her. And once it was revealed that he's been benip- being manipulated by dark forces through his grief. Yeah, basically his grief. Once that was established, I was like, oh, he's totally going to do this. And the dark forces are totally going to come out and they're totally going to eat him. <laughs> yeah, he had hit, you know, he'd obviously hit that point where he was going to do what he was going to do. And that was it. And the movie does not take a left turn from that at all. So that was where I was like, oh, this is this is a little predictable. But, it, you know, it wasn't awfully predictable. It's just that the, that beat I could see coming from, like, I don't know, a half an hour away. <laughs> that sort of thing. But I will say that that element of the story of the quote-unquote villain being a man who is misguided by his grief is very interesting. I also thought that his resentment for his son not being able to do anything to save his mom was interesting too. (sighs) There's a lot of guilt elements in this film. That line didn't work for me when that was kind of tossed in there during the final fight. He was like, really? You have not demonstrated that degree of callousness toward him? The entire movie. Like, you haven't felt resentful toward him. Well, he him. was at his lowest point. Yeah, it didn't work for me. Uh, that that line. the old, Everything else around it was working for me. But a line like that, I was like, ah, really? Ah. I don't know, man. If you're, like, really grief-stricken, you're going to say some things you don't mean eventually. Well, and also, obviously, very easily being manipulated by dark forces. I can go with that. That makes sense. That's totally fine uh, with me. 
But shall we talk about some of the more spoiler elements, the the surprises throughout the movie that ties the film to other movies of the past? No, not not just yet. I mean, there were good things that were happening within this film in its own story. I I think Go it's ahead. important to acknowledge them. I loved how Katie and Shang-Chi were going through the motions of, okay, we have a job, it's fine, we're doing okay, and how everyone around them, friends and family, would like to see them do better in life. But they were just, they were happy. And it's later revealed when Katie gets to the village that she just doesn't want to get her hopes up and then be horribly disappointed. And I think a lot of people go through those motions. Like you can see that you're getting good at something and then, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to hang back. I don't want to disappoint myself at all. And I guess Shang-Chi's grandma, I think. I thought it was her grandma. That whole family at the table? No, I'm talking about in the village. Oh. Speaking to Katie. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. I think it's grandma. Okay. If it's not, I'm, I'm sorry. But she says if you're not aiming at anything, you won't hit anything. Yeah, she uses the word yeah. nothing, but you've got the gist. Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought that that was really interesting and a lovely little nod to what a lot of people in society are going through right now. They've studied, they don't really know how they're going to implement it or. They have potential and they, 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 they're not so sure if they want to actually use it. And I just thought that that was a lovely nod. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd mentioned earlier that chosen family, blood family, the depiction of, of that dynamic was really lovely in this short space of time in this film. Obviously, we have Shang-Chi's family. His parents were doing their own thing and they fell in love and you know, they let go of their their powers, essentially, to make a family and be present. And that was really lovely, seeing how the four of them would interact and how loving and caring and present they were with each other. That was just divine. And then we see Shang-Chi with Katie's family, and he is enjoying the little moments with each of them and encouraging them and being there for Katie. And I love Katie's grandma because she's like, when are you guys going to get married? (laughs) It's just so sweet. And he's very, you know, we're just friends. And that's where they are in their life right now. Who knows, you know, what their plans are for the future. But right now they're just enjoying each other as is. And I thought that if anything, this film was really good at showing, enjoying a present time, you know? Mm. Yeah, very good. Yeah, and actually going back to something you were saying earlier, when they were car parkers, valets, I noticed immediately that his name tag said Sean instead of Shane. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I pointed that out, and it turned out to be a a more significant detail than I expected. Yeah, it it was very... I thought, you know, like the dad says later, I have always known where my children are. Yeah. But I gave you a decade to sort yourself out. To live your life. Yeah. And I th- I thought that was cool too, even though he's terribly crazy with his grief and, and completely mm-hmm. unreasonable. I I still like that element being put in there. You know, he has a man that's that was immortal for a while. And he's like, well, we've got time. A decade will be fine. 
Speaking of which, that's a great segue, love, to who that guy actually is. And I would not have known based on his oh, name. Oh, you found some info? Well, I wouldn't have known based on his name. He, he goes by Zhu Wenwu, not a name I was familiar with, and not even a name that has been historically used in the comics for this character, which is the real Mandarin. Yeah, it was a really interesting conversation at the dinner table when he's talking about Western, the West, you know, appropriating Eastern culture, and they took his name and turned it into something so shit. And, you know, he he talks about getting revenge or something, but it's very, you don't really know what's going on until later. So let's clarify. What he is talking about is what happened in Iron Man 3, where... Uh, Killian, oh, I can't remember his last name, who was played by Guy Pierce as the main villain, had claimed to be the Mandarin, had utilized the term Mandarin and the Ten Rings as the name of his organization, a terrorist organization to try to cripple the United States government. And here's the interesting thing about this. I know that some people are going to watch this and immediately interpret that as a way to slam or dismiss or discredit what happens in Iron Man 3. To me, I actually think it takes what was a brilliant movie, Iron Man 3, and augments it even more, justifies it even more, because it's it's saying... No, not that that guy was actually the Mandarin, but it says that he was a guy who took that name for his own purposes, culturally appropriated, as you said, for his own purposes, twisted it into something else. And he dismisses it as saying it's like the he took the name of a, a chicken dish, yes. basically, right? <laughs> and really reduces it. And I thought that that did not dismiss Iron Man 3, did not speak ill of Iron Man 3 and what it happens, I, but it, it just justifies it even more. It validates it, is the word I'm looking for. Validates it even more, but changes your perspective of what's happening there, too. Yeah, yeah. Right? I love how Xylene has obviously heard this story many times before, <laughs> because as he's starting to share it, she she just very slightly rolls her eyes and she's like, oh, my God, I have to listen to this again. Mm. Yeah. Oh, and I loved how she, you know, landed in the movie at the end. I thought that that was interesting. It looks like oh. she's building her own whoa, empire. Whoa, whoa. OK, you're jumping ahead. Yeah. You're jumping ahead. You're jumping ahead. You're jumping ahead. One thing at a time here. Uh, let's let's st- stick with the whole Mandarin stuff here because there's a lot to talk about. Because now I'm kind of being like Zyming. I'm like I'm rolling my eyes. I'm like I want to get to her thing. <laughs> that's that's totally fine. Okay. We'll get to the stuff at, at the the post credit scenes. We always forget to tell people that there's post credit scenes. By the way, we'll get there. First, let's talk about the other thing that ties back to Iron Man three. Okay, Ben Kingsley appears it was really nice seeing him yeah right and he explains what happened to him after the short film that said what happened to him after iron man 3 i don't know if you remember but there was a short film that that was made i don't remember that yeah there was a time during the first phase especially and into the second phase when 
Marvel Studios would create short films that would be released on the respective Blu-rays of the films. And his was possibly the last one, if I remember correctly. And it basically showed him, you know, he's he's um, going to prison and stuff. Uh, The Slattery is his first name. Gordon. Is it Gordon Slattery? Something like that. But it ta- he, he explains what happened to him, and he's been in prison by this guy, Wu, uh, Zhu Wenwu, all this time. What did you think of The Return of Slattery? I enjoyed it. I, I was having a lot of fun because there were no white people, and it was this totally Asian immersion experience, and I, I loved every second of it. But then I saw Ben Kinsey, and I was like, oh, okay. Oh, but okay. <laughs> you know? So it, it was you, interesting. It took you a second it to realize. It took me a while because he wasn't really recognizable. Mm, interesting. I recognized him instantly. Maybe partially because I can recognize Ben Kingsley anytime, right? Because he's been around for so long. But Well, I am familiar with a man's face, but <laughs> I was also trying to process, well, who are you actually? Ah, uh, so. you didn't remember. Okay. Yeah. So what did you think after you did remember? I was somewhat excited about it because <laughs> it kind of reminded me of Tropic Thunder when they when they when Ben Stiller gets to the uh, village and they're like, oh well, now you will perform for us. <laughs> <laughs> so I I kind of felt good about it. I was like, okay, well if he's here in this capacity, that's fine. And then it's revealed that he actually communes with one of the mythical creatures, right? And he's. Obviously reached a place in his life where he's back to neutral, back to his love of acting. Right, and, back to his, yeah. You know, and, and he's okay now. And yeah, that I, was just really interesting. Like, well, because you're in the zone, now you get to, you get this little reward from the universe where you get to commune with a mythical creature. Speaking of that mythical creature, I could almost take or leave that mythical th- creature, except one thing they did well with it is they actually like made it significant to a plot point in mm. the movie. Yeah, and they didn't overplay it. Look, if this mythical creature gets turned into a toy, I'm not buying it because it, it does to me look like a turkey with iridescent hummingbird wings. So, you know, <laughs> with dog furry. paws. So I'm a little, no. <laughs> now the fox thing that looks like a Pokemon, that I'll go for. But I, I liked the creatures that we got to see and I liked that they weren't, focused on too much and mm. I, I loved the dragon and I couldn't help but think of a connection between Aquafina with Raya the lost dragon and and then uh, her because there's this one shot where Aquafina looks at the dragon and it's this like I don't know there was maybe it's just because of what I know but it was kind of this respect of like yes representation of uh, re- representation of dragons yes <laughs> so I liked it that dragon Okay, so that dragon was teased throughout the entire movie. And I was so excited because I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. Are they going to have Fiend Fan Foom in this film? Uh, Have they figured out a way to have Fiend Fan Foom in the MCU? And I was... So who is that? I was thrilled. It's not a character I know a lot about, but... It is, I'll, I'll show you a picture and you'll be like, oh, that one. This is Fin Fan Foom. And it's a giant green dragon, basically. It seems very Asian in, in its origin. And 
I was thinking that that was what the great protector was going to end up being. Mm. It doesn't seem like that's really the case. No, this looked like a very, I don't know a lot about dragons, but this looked like a very, you know, water-based dragon. It didn't seem what you're showing me at all. A, a traditionally traditional Chinese representation of a dragon, right, is what we actually see in the film. Something a little more. Uh, what was that? Raya and the Last Dragon? It's a little more akin to what you might see in Raya well, and the Last Dragon. It also reminds me of Spirited Away, especially. Mm. Yeah, Fin Fan Foom. Uh, I'll just read to you here. Uh, depicted as an extraterrestrial creature resembling a dragon. First appeared in 1961, created by Stanley and Jack Kirby. Well, there it is. It's extraterrestrial. It's M- not. Member of the Rogues Gallery of Iron Man. And he's he's wreaked havoc with other characters in the in the Marvel universe as well. So anyway, I was like pumped because I was thinking this is the direction the movie was going. And as far as I can tell, that's not really what they did. That's not who the Great Protector is. Great Protector is something more respectful and more accurate to Chinese cultural. Uh, mythical dragons what they're mm, supposed to be mm. so but I, I just wanted to throw that out though that i was like i was really excited about the possibility <laughs> of having fim fam foom figured out and unlocked uh-huh. for the mcu yeah two other appearances i think we should and then we should t- talk about the credit sequences there's a fight scene a uh, fight uh club so to speak an underground yes. fight club so to speak and who we see fighting in that, surprisingly, is Wan mm-hmm. from Doctor Strange and Abomination from Incredible 2008's Incredible Hulk. Well, at first I got excited because I thought it was like something like Swamp Thing. But is that a DC thing? Swamp Thing? Yeah. Oh, okay. So there we go. Yeah, that was pretty exciting. And the the effects of abomination look really good uh-huh. and i was like whoa but there's the portal where are they going <laughs> yeah well yeah that's a good question but it was, it was actually a good tease it was actually tim roth playing oh it was abomination that's exciting yeah i'm very happy for him but here's what's weird you just said the portal it was like the fight finished mm-hmm. and then like it was almost like the fight was an act yeah and 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 like they actually worked together on this act and they came they left together in the same portal but wong was also saying like you need to practice a specific punch and controlling his punches yeah and that was interesting because it's like what are you training him to do are you making like a suicide squad thing what's happening here well there is a big question mark of what is going on with abomination and what we're like, how is he going to show up in the future and to, to what capacity? What is that going to yeah. be? But that was an incredible callback to 13 years ago now, I, guys. Yeah, I do like when they do shit like that. And then I, I think it's safe to, to segue now to the, the, the end credit sequences. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we have the really artistic credits that they always do. Really kind of cool. In this case, it's watery uh, water figures and all that sort of stuff, which is kind of cool. Then it they... was totally speaking my language. I am a big fan of water photography and imagery. I was like, oh, I'll just I'll just watch this the whole time. <laughs> and then it ends, and we have our first credit scene, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, the scene. And it's Benedict Wong 
he is talking to Shang-Chi and Katie because the movie ends with him taking them away, right? Yes, as they were as they were telling a story, which was a lovely this this movie does lovely bookends, you know, starting with a story of how did we meet and then ending with a story of like, well, how did we come together and get focused? You know, mm-hmm. that was lovely. Yes. So now we see where they, where they went. So there's some secrets about these rings that have not been discovered during the course of this movie yet that are only teased in this, in this scene. And we don't fully understand what it is, but we learn that it is calling out to something, these 10 rings. It's a signal. Right. Yeah. And who is trying to puzzle that out? Not only Juan, but also Carol Danvers. So we do see Brie Larson and... Hulk. Right, Bruce Banner. Yeah. Who is not, he's not smart He's Hulk. not Hulk, yeah, yeah. Which I just, it just clicked on oh, me. okay. Like, oh my God, what happened? Well, I mean, last time we saw him, he was Smart Hulk, and he had his arm, um, his arm in a sling. Because remember, he had the glove, and right. Uh, so now something must have happened. Why would he change back to normal Banner? Yeah. I mean, how did that happen? Because remember, he explained in Avengers Endgame, mm. something happened where the two psyches merged, or the two quote unquote people merged, right? Yeah. Him and the other guy, right? And now he's like Smart Hulk. So why isn't he anymore? Yeah. And why is Carol constantly leaving? Well, <laughs> why you know, is Captain Marvel always like, I'm sorry, I got to take this. You know, the child is burning the house down or whatever it is. So. And that always is fine. Uh, easy way to get her out of a scene because yeah. she is defending like an entire universe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. She's not just looking after one little planet. Exactly. Exactly. So it's easy for her to be preoccupied. They even joke about that. But what did you think of that scene? What did it mean? I to liked you? it. I like that it eliminated. The, you know, it was very brief. They eliminated that it's it's not ancient of this earth. They eliminated it's not alien from what they can understand and see, which leads me to believe. Well, if Eternals is next, I think I think it might be celestial. I think it's maybe something that we haven't been exposed to yet. Could be. You know, I thought about. WandaVision and I was like well maybe it's is it relics oh I can't remember but I think I, I thought know well maybe about. it's it's that related it's like magic magic related yeah, yeah. and then I thought no they something would have come up but I I think it's going to be Eternals related mm. and the Eternals trailer talks about something like oh we were brought here and we were told by them not to interfere yeah and then we see this giant sort of glowing monster thing. Uh-huh. Um, so I think it's going to be related to that. Yeah. Uh, and for those who don't know, what Shannon is referring to are the celestials, which are eternally, a, how, how do you say, millennial old. Well, isn't it like Star-Lord's dad, Ego? Was he a celestial? Oh, he might have yeah. been. So I'm thinking, you know, these rings have been on Earth from the beginning, probably. And they were used for evil. Now they're being used for good. They've been transformed, you know, clearly from the color, the color change from blue to this warm, this warm gold. And I, I, I think maybe it's a signal of like, okay, humanity's ready now to be 
checked on or whatever. Mm. That's my guess. I, I think that's a, a really good theory. And it'd be an interesting to see how well that falls in line. I was just really quickly trying to look up who the, what, what characters are Celestials, and I'm not able to find it fast enough because it's too dense. Their history is way too dense. But anyway, and then we have what you wanted to talk about, the last post, 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 post credit sequence. There's two credit sequences, and this is after all the credits. If you sit around, you see what, Shanna? You see Xiling um, creating a, an empire at her father's compound where women are training in martial arts practices uh, alongside with men. So I don't know what she's up to. I don't think it's necessarily just for entertainment value. It could be because that seems to be a good way to fund things. I don't scoff at, but I, I think she's up to something. I don't think it's necessarily sinister, but hmm. she's she's up to something. And I hope that we get to come back to her because, as I said, I enjoyed her. And I, I want to know more about her. Looking ahead, do you have any theories as to when that might pay off? tie back in? Yeah, pay off. That's probably when Shang-Chi is going to be in something again. You know, like how we have Civil War, all these characters come together. And that's when some things got wrapped up or tied up or got leveled up, rather. And so I think something like that, probably one of those movies will bring that back. Well, it's very clear that this movie leads into Doctor Strange and the, the multiverse of madness directly, just like Loki did. Mm -hmm. Are you thinking that's when we'll see her? Or are you thinking something else down the line? I, I don't think it's it's going to pay off in Doctor Strange because isn't it's Eternals and then Doctor Strange. Yes, correct. I, I don't think it's going to pay off that quickly. If it does, I'll be surprised, but right. I'm thinking it's going to be in an ensemble one. Excellent. All right. Any other thoughts you wanted to talk about? Nope. This was really fun. I love that they included karaoke nights. I want to do a karaoke <laughs> night. I didn't know there was an option to do a karaoke night in a private room. That sounds great. I won't kill people that don't love me. <laughs> okay. So. All right. Uh, we've obviously had a lot of thoughts about Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. What do you think about the film? Feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. And now it's time for Film Faves. Film Faves is the part of the show where we count down our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. The idea behind this is to give you a sense of our taste in movies, but also hopefully to expose you to maybe some titles you haven't heard of before or haven't seen yet but have heard of. And to that end, we try to point out to you when a movie is available on a subscription streamer service. We focus on, because there's so many out there, we only focus on Netflix, Amazon Prime, Apple TV+, Disney+, Hulu, and HBO Max. So when there's a movie that we want to highlight that is available on those right now, we'll let you know. With this episode, we have a special treat for you guys. A guest, friend of the show, Alan Gilchrist. Now, Alan is a aficionado of certain franchises of movies where he has read a lot and is just kind of knows the ins and outs of certain franchises. Uh, Rocky, the James Bond franchise. 
He was last on the show years ago when we reviewed Fate and the Furious. We had a really good time. He he and I have a, a shared love of that franchise. But also, he is quite the aficionado when it comes to martial arts movies, our topic in this episode for Film Faves. I haven't been able to. I've been trying since the that early episode to get Alan back to talk about uh, related movies like Creed or or what have you. The Spectre was another one. Tried to get him on, and unfortunately, with uh, when it comes to F nine, which hopefully we'll have a discussion of, but also. This episode, thanks to the pandemic, not only does Alan's situation have a lot of technological limitations and restrictions, but uh, he also has a personal life that involves immune-compromised loved ones. So there was a lot of jumps we went through to make this appearance possible, and I'm really grateful to all the work that he did to, to make this possible. And so I'm going to... Hand it over to Alan Gilchrist for him to talk about martial arts movies and count down his 12 favorite martial arts films. Hello, uh, my name is Alan, and just kind of as a means of introduction here to this whole uh, top 12 martial arts list, you know, I was just discussing, uh, you know, my wife and I were both discussing our childhood uh, the other day, and we are kind of talking about um, how at a certain age, you, you start to recognize, like, wow, you know, we don't play with toys anymore or dolls or any of those things. It kind of just fades away um, as you enter your early teens. And we were kind of just talking about that, all the different things that come up in life. You get more interested in girls or boys or, you know, sports or whatever. And um, those things were all true for me. But I also started to realize, you know, around the age of uh, 11 or 12, I really started to get into, like, action movies and martial arts movies. Um, It's pretty common to rent like three or four of them a week, Um, you know, back in the days of blockbuster video (laughs) Um, or ma and pop stores that were nearby my house where I could rent movies, Uh, you know, and and you'd watch these movies, you know, as quickly as you could, then run outside and uh, try to emulate what you'd seen on the screen. And, you know, I would go out and spar with my stepbrother and do all kinds of wacky stuff, pretending we were ninjas and hurting each other on accident. I wasn't like a particularly violent kid, but, you know, I was just pretty impressed with like the physical prowess and the dedication that, you know, people in these films uh, must have had to be able to get good enough at at the things you see on the screen to do them. Um, And a lot of the cases of the films I'm going to talk about today, uh, a lot of the actors perform a lot of their own stunts. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I wanted to be a stuntman or, or what, but or I thought I was invincible. But, you know, uh, I definitely was out there trying to emulate what I saw on TV just for fun. You know, and I had some fairly extended periods in my life where I trained in martial arts. Uh, and even when I didn't, I still found the uh, genre to be amongst my favorite ones to watch. Well, it's kind of safe to say that I've watched my fair share of horrible uh, movies and one or two of those may have snuck their uh, way onto this list because I just couldn't say no but I do feel like a lot of these movies have a lot to offer in terms of like you know the cinematography um, the way they show the action uh, and just the pure thrills with some of the stunts and things like that 
Um, it should be noted that, that some of these films that I'm going to talk about, you know, they have more than just one star, you know, actor or actress, uh, you know, within the film, or they might actually be contributions from well-known directors and fight choreographers, but kind of for the sake of brevity, I'm just going to mention the film and its year of release and then uh, its main star. So with that, I will commence with my top 12 favorite martial arts films. Alright, so the number 12 on my list is 1988's uh, Bloodsport, uh, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. Basically, there's no better film to kind of get my list started than this movie. You know, the, the plot of this movie is, is basically responsible for reintroducing kind of the tournament-style format as a means to show, you know, multitudes of stylistic acts, uh, you know, ass-kicking. So in the movie Van Damme, he plays uh, Frank Dukes, who in real life is like an alleged martial artist champion uh, who's in, who was invited to fight in a tournament called the Kumite. It's a secret underground martial arts competition. Over the years, a lot of like the claims that Frank Dukes had about his abilities and his wins and all those types of things have been disputed or proven to be false. But don't let that take away from the movie too much. Uh, it's really just Van Damme kicking a lot of butt. What makes this movie kind of cool is that it predates, you know, the mainstream awareness of mixed martial arts um, and or multiple different types of styles being on display in, in a film or otherwise. So uh, ba basically the competitors make their way through multiple rounds against a variety of martial arts practitioners and try to become the champion. And the film's main antagonist uh, named Chong Li is this big muscle-bound, straight-up like merciless fighter, and he's played by... Uh, longtime Hong Kong film actor Bolo Young, who you might recognize from another film later on in this list. Uh, he's in Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon. In this film, Bloodsport, he's actually pretty terrifying. No way I'd want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with this guy. So, Anyway, um, as a teenager, you know, my friends and I often pass this uh, movie around on VHS and it made the rounds. Uh, definitely one of my favorite uh, all-action, uh, no-plot martial arts films. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, so check it out. All right, next up on my list here at number 11 is 1994's Fist of Legend, starring Jet Li. Uh, this film is a remake of the Bruce Lee film Fist of Fury, in which a young Chinese student, Chen, uh, seeks revenge for a murder of his master. Uh, so it's kind of that old conventional revenge plot. The film is set near the beginning of World War II and a time in which the Imperial Japanese Army were stationed in China and Chinese culture was really being threatened by their presence. This is the backdrop for the film. Uh, you know, Chen has to contend not only with the Japanese uh, martial arts or karateka students that are imparting their will on others, but also uh, square off against Japanese military leaders uh, that are suppressing their culture. The fight choreography in the film was overseen by legendary choreographer and director uh, Yuan Wuping, who features intricate fight scenes and clever use of wire work that kind of enhances, you know, the impact of strikes uh, as they appear on screen, making kind of them appear more brutal than most other films that came before. Uh, the fight sequences really ramp up in intensity as the movies go along, and I usually let people know that are new to watching the film that there's definitely a couple of look-away moments if you're squeamish about bone breaks or dislocations. But yeah, this movie is prime Jet Li, considered one of the best uh, in his whole career, uh, so definitely check it out. Number 10 on my list is Once Upon a Time in China, 
uh, released in 1991, starring Jet Li. It's one of several Hong Kong films to portray Chinese folk hero Wong Fei Hong, uh, this time played by Jet Li. Wong Fei Hong was a martial artist and physician, and in this film he's depicted as a protector of the people against the growing presence of Western forces, which are infiltrating and threatening uh, Chinese culture. My favorite action set piece in this film is a fight that takes place up on a large boat. Uh, much of it's up on, on high on ladders. Uh, there's a lot of running from side to side and balancing as the two fighters are, are trying to uh, outdo each other. Um, it's a really inventive scene, definitely different than what would be on offer in Western films uh, at that time. This film helped re-energize the martial arts uh, genre back in the early 90s, and it accelerated an already promising career for Jet Li, who went on to star in several other sequels along with other box office successes like Feng Suiyuk 1 and 2, also known as The Legend 1 and 2, and uh, star alongside Michelle Yeoh in The Tai Chi Master, which is another great film. All right, so next up on my list here is number nine. Uh, I'm going with uh, 1978's Drunken Master, starring Jackie Chan. In this film, Jackie plays a younger and kind of more irresponsible version of the folk hero Wong Fei Hung, uh, embodying what would become kind of a familiar trope in martial arts films in the late 70s and early 80s, where you've got a brash, cocky, yet still likable young youthful character who's taken under the wing of a punishing master. You know, and at first the master is thought to be nothing more than just a drunkard, but he in truth helps uh, Wong Fei Hung learn the eight drunken immortals. It's a, unlocking a form of drunken boxing or drunken kung fu depicted in a lot of films, you know, in the years that followed that was pretty much made for, for film. <laughs> kind of, you know, I find the training sequences in this movie to be uh, equal parts kind of brutal and impressive. They really showcase Jackie's abilities to, his physical ability, his uh, comedic ability, and how to combine those two things. And of course that carries over nicely to the fight sequences that follow. And a lot of the comedic tilt and the impressive physicality displayed throughout Jackie Chan's career really became, you know, a thing here with this movie. Um, around this time in his career, you know, he was working to shed that constant pressure from the movie studios to be the new Bruce Lee, and this is a, his way of bringing something of his own to life. Uh, so I think the film's significant for that. And I will say that I, I noted to myself that I, I kind of struggled with whether to include this film or the sequel, Drunken Master 2, which kind of depicts an older, wiser Wong Fei Hung. But as great as that film is, and there are some great stunts in it, uh, I tend to return to this one uh, more often. I just kind of like it a bit better. Number eight is Ip Man from 2008, starring Donnie Yen. This is loosely based on the life of Yip Man, a grandmaster of martial arts in Wing Chun, who in addition to training several other masters, uh, he also trained a young Bruce Lee before Bruce Lee moved here uh, to the U.S. The film definitely plays fast and loose with some of the details of his life, uh, but it's really a fun watch. Donnie Yen, who portrays Hitman, is a longtime veteran of the Hong Kong cinema and finally gets his time to shine in this movie. He's he often was like a secondary character or a villain in a lot of other films. Uh, this movie 
he uh, takes the star lead and uh, he's very exciting to watch uh, the, the action's really brutal and physical he's known for having a lot of full contact fighting in his scenes or as close to it as possible uh, to ensure that it looks more real to life this film spawned three different sequels i've only seen one of them but you can, really can't go along with this one uh, be sure to check it out it's it's a great film number seven on my list is enter the dragon starring Bruce Lee, came out in 1973. Uh, following the success of Bruce's first three films, uh, he struck a deal with Warner Brothers to star in the first Chinese martial arts film to be produced by Hollywood Production Company. It turns out to be one of the most successful martial arts films of all time. Uh, sadly, uh, Bruce Lee died only three weeks from the film's premiere, and he never really got to fully enjoy his hard-earned success. The film uh, itself it kind of plays out a little bit like a, a James Bond movie with uh, Bruce's character Lee infiltrating a known drug trafficking oper operation uh, under the guise of being a participant in a private martial arts tournament uh, that's being put on by the film's big bad, their um, Han. So other fighters in the tournament are Roper, played by film veteran John Saxon, and one of my favorite characters in the genre growing up, martial artist Jim Kelly, who himself went on to make a number of other films for Warner Brothers uh, in his own right, uh, though nothing as successful as Enter the Dragon. Another tidbit about the film, if you look closely uh, at some of the fight scenes, uh, there's one in the caves that you'll catch a glimpse of uh, future martial arts film legend Jackie Chan making a brief appearance as one of the guards who attacks Lee. Uh, he's the one that gets dispatched uh, via a broken neck, so uh, maybe that'll help you <laughs> notice when, when that happens. Uh, while the film infamously uh, filled the background with scenes with extras off the street, you can see them like performing in the background, sometimes laughing, goofing around. The action on display by everyone else is really crisp and exciting. Bruce, as usual, is a force to be reckoned with. Some of his most memorable scenes of his entire career came from this film. This film was hugely impactful. Uh, several imitators you know, came after Bruce Lee's death trying to make similar films. Uh, you'll even see uh, elements of this film in video games like Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter uh, with several callbacks and references and you know to the elements that are found uh, in this movie. Um, there have been several remakes that have been rumored to be in the works uh, all through the 2000s, but none of them have ever uh, materialized. And I think that has a lot to do with having to match the presence of uh, someone like Bruce Lee, who today is just, you know, still a cultural icon. So if you haven't managed to stumble upon uh, Enter the Dragon, definitely check it out. Okay, so the next film on my list, uh, number six, is Way of the Dragon from 1972, starring Bruce Lee. You know, this film features Lee as a kind of a country bumpkin uh, named Tang Lung, who's relocated to Rome. Uh, he's helping his family friend with their restaurant, and he has to help them fend off uh, these local gangsters who are putting pressure on them to sell their restaurant so they can purchase the property. And basically, you know, the gangsters are harassing customers, assaulting the workers, and hurting the business. So, you know, Bruce Lee, Tang Lung, shows up. You know, he finds himself using his fighting prowess to take on the gangsters. You know, many of them he dispatches rather easily. But, you know, the film, it's it's a little bit different for, for Bruce as his character experiences a lot of uh, fish-out-of-water moments. And they're often played for comedic effect. 
But he also uh, shows some instances where there's like a subtle, you know, racism or discrimination from bystanders, like in the airport during the, the opening of the film. And there's also references to, you know, the practicality of like hand-to-hand fighting, you know, in a contemporary world where people just can have guns and take somebody out with, you know, low effort, low skill. Uh, and those kind of make for some interesting moments in the film. And they kind of lift it a little bit above, you know, just being a goofy martial arts comedy. You know, and I would say, despite some of the sillier moments in the film, I kind of tend to rate this one a little bit higher than Enter the Dragon, which is kind of something my, my younger self would be shocked about. But I think, you know, part of the reason is, you know, being that it was co-produced and written and directed by Bruce, uh, you can tell it really meant a lot to him. And I think the film has a bit more heart because of it. And it kind of depicts, you know, people being out of their element and trying to do well by others and ending up in some pretty intense, you know, situations kind of along the way. You know, and of course, you know, Bruce shines with his lightning quick kicks and punches uh, along with uh, the deft use of, of his nunchaku, which at this point, you know, had been in multiple films. But whenever you see footage of him, I mean, they usually tend to kind of show a montage of him using his nunchucks. And this film, you know, has some of that as well. Uh, but I think the real star of the show, as far as this movie, is the uh, stunning fight scene between Bruce and a U.S. fighter named Colt, which is played by a young, beardless, but still impossibly hairy Chuck Norris. Uh, the final scene takes place in the Colosseum in Rome, and it's not to be missed. I don't want to give too much away, but so I, I still find myself like pulling this fight up on YouTube from time to time just to check it out. So definitely one of my favorites, so that's why it's on the list. Alright, so number five on my list, appropriately enough, is The Five Deadly Venoms, uh, released in 1978. This film features a group that came to be known as the Venom Mob, uh, made up of five childhood friends who attended the Fuxing Drama School in Taiwan and later worked together under contract with uh, Shaw Brothers Movie Studios. Uh, and in addition to this movie, they went on to star in a bunch of other Shaw Brothers pictures, uh, either all together or in some combination of like three or four of them. Uh, there was actually sometimes a sixth member, but he didn't star in as many of the films as, as the others did. So anyway, yeah, this movie, uh, Five Deadly Venoms, is notable for introducing a group of characters, uh, each with their own strengths and weaknesses, and each member is named after the five poisonous creatures of the Chinese folklore, which are the centipede, snake, scorpion, lizard, and toad. And each of these identities play a role in the film as their various techniques and strengths and weaknesses come into play uh, as they fight, which makes for kind of an exciting and entertaining well, you know, thing to watch. Uh, and the premise of the film was pretty cool, too. Uh, one of the last pupils of the master is sent to contact and send word to the master's colleague that some of his disciples have strayed and may not be kind of living the best life. They're, they're trying to steal this guy's fortune. And it's up to this youngest pupil, uh, Yang Te, to track down the members of the clan and determine who's good or bad. And it makes it more interesting that each member of the clan has been individually concealed, they've been all been individually trained and their identity has been concealed from one another and they're out living in plain sight and so they don't know who's who. And so this youngest pupil, it's up to him to figure out who can be trusted and who can't be. The action in the movie is a lot more of the, the old school variety 
uh, with fight scenes kind of looking more like kind of elaborate dance where it's like this punch is this counter and so forth and back and forth. But it's still a very cool thing to watch, especially because of the different identities of each of the uh, characters. Um, this movie is also notable because uh, hip-hop legends the Wu-Tang Clan famously used some of the English dub clips from the film uh, in between some of the tracks on their debut album, Enter the Wu-Tang Clan, 36 Chambers, as well as on some of the other you know, solo albums and things like that that they recorded over the years. You can hear little tidbits of uh, bits from this movie and some other Hong Kong cinema martial arts films as well. So it's kind of a cool little uh, note there. Next up on my list is number four which came out in 1985. It's Police Story, starring Jackie Chan. You know, following his multiple uh, failed attempts to cross over in the U.S. markets with films like 1980's The Big Brawl uh, and 1985's The Protector, the, the latter of which Jackie expressed a lot of frustration with. You know, he's being directed on screen to kind of have this cool bravado and kind of be like Clint Eastwood. Um, real stoic and everything, and it didn't really suit Jackie's style. You know, that same year he returned back to Hong Kong, and he set out to make his own movie about police work. And of course, he infused it with lots of stunts and comedy, rather than the like overt macho stylings that you know you saw in Western action films uh, back then. So there are several notable stunts in the movie. Um, you know, some with vehicles, like there's a a scene where they drive through a shanty town going down the side of a mountain. There's a double-decker bus sequence. Pretty impressive stuff. Uh, as usual, there's a lot of physical acrobatics and impressive choreography on display. And uh, lots of broken glass. Uh, the, the cast of the film actually renamed this movie The Glass Story um, on the count of the final showdown in a shopping mall where Jackie and all his stunt team, they threw and kicked and punched themselves through panes of double thick sheets of sugar glass, you know, which is supposed to be a stunt glass, but they, they wanted it to look, you know, real, so they made it extra thick, which kind of made it like glass anyway. Uh, pretty dangerous. I don't want to ruin the final stunt for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, but I can say uh, check that out and stick around for the credits. Uh, no, Sam Jackson does not make an appearance, but uh, we're instead treated to outtakes of uh, various stunts throughout the movie, including alternate angles, and they show just how dangerous some of the things uh, that were done were. You know, around this time, uh, this and other Jackie Chan films started to make waves here in the U.S., uh, I remember my dad having a, you know, so I'll sit down and watch this and Project A as a double feature one day when we were, I mean, I must have been 10 or 11. And it was a great way to be introduced to, you know, a different take on a martial arts or action film. Um, so definitely one of my favorites. Number three on my list is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, starring Michelle Yeoh and Chow Yun-Fat and Zi Zheng. Originally released in July of 2000 in Hong Kong and later this in the same year uh, in the U.S. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was a wildly successful film that brought the wuxia genre to the Western audiences. I mean, it had been in other films, but it really uh, uh, put across that kind of hero uh, or almost superhero-like character. This film has so much to offer, uh, excellent acting, story, gorgeous visuals amazing choreography and a great musical score uh, it's overflowing with great scenes but my favorite one is uh, the showdown between Michelle Yeoh and Zizang who face off with Yeoh using multiple weapons in this like breathtaking exchange and like a uh, I guess you'd call it a, um, 
a dojo but it features long excellent long shots and it can capture like the full range of the action like panning back or overhead shots um, it's not like a lot of western films where things are shown up really close and you can't see the movements so this really captures just all the beautiful you know action as it unfolds definitely uh, one of my favorite uh, films of all time but as so uh, often is the case with uh, lists like this i could have put this in the other two films that follow in any order but i guess i find myself uh, reaching for the next two with a little bit more regularity okay next up on my list uh, for number two is hero from 2002 starring jet lee uh, another film with an amazing visual presence. The quality and intensity of any one of the fight sequences on their own could easily stand as an effective like final battle in most films. You know, but we're lucky this film has them all. Uh, this film uses a lot of uh, color. You know, green, reds, blues, white, all very vibrant, and they play a large part in conveying the mood and feel of the action sequences they, as they unfold. Definitely my favorite moment in the film takes place early on when Jet Li's uh, character Nameless and Donnie Yen's character uh, Long Sky fight. They face off in a gaming house amidst a uh, downpour of raindrops. It is just a beautiful scene. Uh, it's one I used to use to show off my uh, TV when I first bought one years ago. I don't want to give away too much of the plot for those that haven't seen it, so I won't go into too much detail. But I really can't recommend this movie uh, any more highly if you like uh, stunning visuals, beautiful choreography. Definitely one of my favorites to sit down and watch with somebody who is just getting interested in uh, martial arts films. Alright, so my number one film is The 36th Chamber of Shaolin, or alternately called Master Killer here in America. It was released in 1978 starring Gordon Leo, who plays San Tay. Uh, who seeks sanctuary in the Shaolin Temple following the dissolution of uh, a band of rebels he'd come to be a part of during an uprising against the Manchu government. They basically chase him down and he seeks refuge there and lives there and he, and he go and undergoes training by going through a series of uh, trials of the 35 chambers of Shaolin. And he basically goes through each of these chambers and they specialize in a particular focus or type of technique uh, in order to complete his training. And the scenes that are depicting these, these trainings are widely influential uh, in the genre of martial arts. Uh, all the ones that came to follow, you get those training montages uh, showing painful sequences of people uh, having to endure like you know stretching routines and things like that well this all kind of like came mostly from this movie uh, and for a lot of people uh, those are the favorite parts of the film and uh, so this is another uh, of the films that widely influenced uh, the hip-hop group Wu-Tang Clan you know they named their first album it's a combination of Enter the Dragon and 36 Chambers of Shaolin they uh, named it Enter the 36 Chambers uh, so this is the, the, you know widely influential for that as well. Uh, but to me, the thing about this film that makes it my favorite on the list, it's the embodiment of everything that draws me into martial arts films and the martial arts in general. The discipline, the commitment to self-improvement, the perseverance uh, in the face of obstacles, they're all on display in the film. And I find it highly rewatchable because of this. So that's that's my number one there. Okay, so that was, again, Alan Gilchrist. 
offering his expertise and knowledge about martial arts movies uh, with his 12 favorite martial arts films. You can find some of his selections, including on HBO Max, Hero, and Police Story, on Amazon Prime, Once Upon a Time in China, and on Netflix, Ip Man, and his number one favorite martial arts movie, The 36 Chambers of Shaolin. I want to thank Alan again for his help with this uh, podcast and participating. His uh, list is definitely much more informative and interesting than mine is going to be. I can promise you that. But it is time for me to run through my 12 favorite martial arts movies. It'll be a much more basic list and include some of his favorites as well. My 12th favorite first is Drunken Master from 1978. As mentioned by Alan, it stars Jackie Chan. And it was one of the more entertaining and... You know, this is... For anyone who's kind of familiar with Jackie Chan's American work, or even vaguely familiar with his Chinese work, his or his Hong Kong cinema work, even this is that comedic element uh, that he's known for. You get some of the you use whatever's near you kind of sense of action, but it's also more like him using his body in creative ways as well as he is pretending to be drunk in the movie and 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 doing this one form of martial arts it's very entertaining it's also a one of his most important and most notable and 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 better films so i definitely recommend checking that out that is drunken master from 1978 my 11th favorite just kind of knocking out a few that apparently were on Alan's list as well. Enter the Dragon, legendary film, Bruce Lee. Can't have a list like this without Enter the Dragon, now can you? You know, as Alan mentioned, this is a movie that was greatly influential, and, and there's, a, there's a film that almost made my list that is directly aping this film and that is Mortal Kombat of course based on the video game but that definitely apes it's it's, it's amazing when I watched Enter the Dragon I was really struck by how much Mortal Kombat steals from this movie and it is probably my favorite Bruce Lee movie that I have seen not that I've seen all of his movies or anything but it's definitely the one that kind of stood out the most and you can kind of see how and why this movie made Bruce Lee the icon that he was and still is to this day. My 10th favorite martial arts movie is another, uh, you know, very basic choice. Another one that was on Alan's list. It is Police Story from 1985, available on HBO Max. As mentioned before, you know, this is the one that I remember best of Jackie Chan's non-Hollywood films. Alan had mentioned some of the different set pieces or stunts and the things with like 
the double-decker bus and the mall and all the glass in the mall and definitely going down that hill of settlements, you know, like shanty towns. Those are the things that stood out in my mind, absolutely, 100%. I tried to remember even Police Story 2, and it just didn't stick in my craw as much as the original Police Story did. And it's, it's a great one. It's one of those that you absolutely have to see if you're even remotely interested in Jackie Chan, if you're remotely interested in martial arts movies, if you're remotely interested in some of the best in Chinese or Hong Kong cinema, this is definitely one of them that you have to you have to check out so yeah police story 1985 on hbo max is my 10th favorite martial arts movie number nine going a little bit different here off the beaten path i'm going to go with the raid redemption from 2012 this is an indonesian film that's basically a single location movie or at least it mostly is a single location movie and this movie is insane this is one of those movies that has just some jaw-dropping bone-crunching kind of wince-inducing action it does not hold back and it's, the stunts are just absolutely extraordinary in it and uh, so surprising but it's one that definitely has stuck with me when I think of martial arts action or even some of the past action in the past decade. The Raid is definitely it. So that is my ninth favorite martial arts movie. The next one is a new discovery for me. It was one that Alan mentioned. Rightly so. It is Ip Man from 2008, available on Netflix. This was the film with, uh, I believe it was Donnie Yen, and he plays a, a, a real person. And, you know, it's interesting about this movie is it plays like a historical drama with martial arts in it, you know. And it tells the story about Japanese-occupied uh, China and what happened. And it, it dawned on me... That you know, this this is like a story that might be happening in in parallel to one of my other favorite stories, Empire of the Sun, from Steven Spielberg, nineteen eighty seven. You know, when the English actually had a presence in China, and when Japan invaded, they were all removed. Well, I have a feeling that in another part of the country, you have the story of Ip Man. And it is an extraordinary one. I was just absolutely blown away by how badass this is, but also how moving it can be and how it's not playing any of the real events lightly. So it, it really kind of impressed the hell out of me. It was a new discovery for me. I highly recommend it on Netflix, Ip Man from 2008. Now, my seventh favorite martial arts movie it's really interesting when i was researching this list researching martial arts movies one that came up a lot was kung fu panda that movie is from 2008 and it's a great film but for me i actually really prefer kung fu panda 2 from 2011 available on netflix and that's my seventh favorite martial arts movies because 
I really love how you have this established dynamic with Poe and his his friends and his master and you know he knows kung fu he's become this kung fu master so to speak but they come into conflict with essentially quote-unquote progress right they come into conflict with someone who has firearms gunpowder cannons these sorts of things and it's like how can kung fu compete against something like that and it's a really great conflict with a really great villain a peacock played by gary oldman i believe you know this is a movie that was highly praised when it came out but i think as time has gone on it's gotten more and more underrated Uh, but it's definitely one of the the best animated sequels i've ever seen and it's definitely worth checking out or revisiting if you haven't in a while that's kung fu panda 2 from 2011 available on netflix now, getting back to something else that Alan mentioned, that is a great movie and so hard not to have in my favorite three or four films. Instead, it lands right at the middle point. It is Hero from 2002, available on HBO Max, Jet Li film, actually a star of uh, Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. Tony Lung, he actually has a very significant role in this film that primarily stars, you know, Jet Li as the title character. And what's really great about this film is it's a wuxia film, and I, I wuxia is something that translated very well and was popularized for a little while in the States here. But what's cool about this is the way the story works it has this not quite Rashomon kind of idea but it takes the wuxia idea and and really is utilized to great effect in that you have someone telling a story and the question ends up becoming okay well how legit is the story this person is telling how exaggerated it is and the wuxia style definitely lends to this idea of possible exaggeration so it's also an absolutely stunning work and zhang yamao is one of my favorite uh, chinese or hong kong film directors and so uh, it's it's just a, a great piece and worth hunting down on hbo max if you can that is hero from 2002 number five my fifth favorite is kung fu hustle from 2004 by stephen chow speaking of wuxia what's great about kung fu hustle and stephen chow what he does is he essentially he makes the martial arts subgenre of things like wuxia and others like something that is translatable and palatable to an American sensibility in that he essentially turns it into a superhero film with a Looney Tunes sensibility, which is really kind of crazy. It is a bonkers, hilarious, wacky, amazing, visually extraordinary film it's so exciting so thrilling i love kung fu hustle it is also a very funny 
funny film too. I highly recommend it if you haven't hunted down Kung Fu Hustle by Stephen Chow from 2004. My fourth favorite, this is, you know, one of those interesting picks, but I kind of had to because it was one of my hundred favorite movies of all time, is 1984's Karate Kid, available on Netflix. Here you have, for the first time I think possibly on this list, karate being represented, and this from the perspective of an American teenager. You have this sort of displaced fish out of water teenager who's trying to fit into a new school and getting bullied and having a really hard time and he's comes under the tutelage of his apartment complex this maintenance guy pat marita's mr miyagi who agrees to help him learn karate and self-discipline as well uh, so that way he can protect himself better and it also becomes kind of an underdog story as well as they compete in a tournament in the third act. Uh, Feel-good film, classic 80s, iconic film. You know, we're in a period of nostalgia fest, and this got repopularized with a YouTube series that I don't know if it translated to Netflix or what, but Cobra Kai has kind of repopularized Karate Kid. I haven't seen that. I've seen all of the Karate Kid sequels, but as far as I'm concerned, this is where it's at. So it's my fourth favorite martial arts movie, available on Netflix. My third favorite martial arts movie was was split into two releases. It is one story split into two releases, because it's like a four-hour film. Uh, it came out in 2003-2004. It is Kill Bill. This is Quentin Tarantino's love letter in many ways to Asian cinema, all kinds of Asian cinema. It includes anime and the kind of vengeance or revenge films of, I think, Japan, but also a lot of kung fu and karate films, martial arts films, too. I think... A couple movies that Alan mentioned is somewhat referenced by this film because what does Quentin Tarantino do is he he just vomits a bunch of references in his stories of some obscure shit that most of us don't know but he does it so well and Kill Bill's one of the best it's absolutely amazing uh, stylized amazingly brutal violence and it's it's just extraordinary i i love kill bill so much i love the story at the heart of it with the bride and her list that she creates that she's going down and what it all comes down to and the, the substance that comes from it it's great stuff kill bill from 2003 and 4 is my third favorite martial arts movie now, for my second favorite martial arts movie, we go back to something that was mentioned by Alan, and it had a huge impact over here, where for a while we would have one major foreign release a year that was like a hit, particularly an Asian release that was a huge hit. You know, Hero was successful in the wake of this film, 
And this film is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which is absolutely gorgeous. I love this film so much. It's such a richly told story, beautifully directed by Ayn Lee. I think I might have even named it as my favorite Chinese movie when we did our Chinese list last year. It's definitely on the list for sure. But uh, yeah, this film, there can't be enough said about it and having Michelle Yeoh in it and being introduced to Zhang Ziyi, who didn't have a, a much success crossing over into Hollywood films, but was always extraordinary herself in her own right. And Chow Yun-Fat, of course, being in it. It's just a great film. There's some superb, amazing, hugely influential and often copied and imitated poorly fight choreography. And it's it's like the creme de la creme of wuxia films, as far as I'm concerned. So I highly recommend checking out Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon from 2000. And lastly, my favorite martial arts movie. It was a movie that I didn't even, I didn't even consider until I came across it on lists when I was researching martial arts movies to make sure I wasn't forgetting anything, and this is definitely one that I would have forgotten. My absolute favorite martial arts movie is The Matrix from 1999, available on HBO Max. Of course, there is that famous moment when Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, says, I know Kung Fu. And he has this great sparring match with Lawrence Fishburne. And of course, there's a lot of Kung Fu, great martial arts, fight choreography that becomes essential to Neo's quest to fight and fend off the agents in The Matrix. And it was absolutely jaw-dropping extraordinary stuff at the time and still is to this day that, that that movie is just an absolute masterpiece and amazing how well it holds up and it's it's rich it's layered there's so much more to it than than the aesthetics of the action the choreography and all that sort of stuff there's a really rich te- story being told you know that could be really dissected and chewed on and thought about and so much discussion comes from watching the matrix and has come for over 20 years, and here we have it in Nostalgia Fest. It's, it's coming back, right? So I think it's also uh, coming back for a reason, and that's because this film is such an extraordinary one. So it is my favorite martial arts movie, The Matrix from 1999 on HBO Max. So... Those are our favorite martial arts movies. Hopefully it helped you get exposed to some new stuff and got you interested in seeking out something that you hadn't heard of uh, before. Uh, What are some of your favorite martial arts movies as it stands right now? Feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. That's going to about do it for this episode of The Movie Lovers. Shannon, before we talk about next episode, could you please share with people where they could find you online? You can find me at Shanna Paxton Photography underscores between those words on Instagram. And you can find me on Flickchart under Spellbinding A. You can find me on the gibsonreview.com that is the main blog where you'll find all features and articles and past episodes of the movie lovers 
You can also follow on social media, facebook.com slash the Gibson review and on Instagram at the Gibson 99. I do bracket polls there and have done a series of bracket polls around sequels. I think since the last episode has hit, we did your favorite MCU sequel, and that ended up being Avengers Endgame of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Then we did your favorite comic book movie sequel non-mcu related that ended up being the dark knight and we just did your favorite horror sequel which ended up being evil dead 2 dead by dawn so feel free to check that out as we're about to do favorite sci-fi and fantasy sequel and eventually a big favorite sequel poll on there should be enjoyable and a lot of fun that should last a few days. And you can also find me on Flickchart, the Gibson 99. Next time on The Movie Lovers, we're going to try to review The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which oddly enough isn't playing in a theater within 30 miles of our location. So hopefully we can make that happen. And Film Phase will focus on favorite entrepreneur movies. Movies having to do with being an entrepreneur and going into business, what have you, those kinds of concepts. So that will be different and interesting. Look for that on Tuesday, September 28th, I believe. In the meantime, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying bye-bye.